Everyone is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Hello, 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 and welcome to Rated LGBT Radio and this installment of our podcast. And yes, I am your host, Rob Watson. Um, we pride ourselves on presenting some some of the first uh, peaks at great films, um, streaming shows. Uh, last week we had Chad Bono with his film Bury the Bride, which was a horror movie, <clears throat> is a horror movie. Uh, we had uh, The Warrior uh, Nuns, um, which is streaming on Netflix. Um, we've had lots of great shows that have been, or great movies that have been in the film festival circuit that would, you know, are slowly making their way to mainstream streaming. Well, today we have a film project that you cannot go check out anywhere because the film is still in production. It is at the very beginning stages. And so we're letting you have a sneak peek of something yet to come. Um, it is a film that will be called Scraps, and um, best way I can describe it is that if the uh, series Heartstopper was set in Montana and around skateboards and an artist, um, you would be in the, the right genre of, of what Scraps is, is going to be about. Um, we have the two filmmakers um, who both wrote the film um, and one is directing the film. <clears throat> Ryan Norton is the director and uh, one of the producers, and <clears throat> Matthew Francis is the other producer and co-writer of, of the scripts. And I say scripts because there is a short film version and a long-term full uh, feature version that um, – have been written. Both of them are excellent. Um, so we are going to talk to them about the film they are planning to make and give you an insight into that whole thought process. Um, but first, I want to uh, pivot over to the editor of the Los Angeles Blade and co-host of the show, uh, Brody Levesque, to find out what is new and happening in our world. Brody, welcome to the show. Hey, good afternoon, Rob, and good afternoon to all of our listeners. Uh, before I start reading through some of the headlines and stories that we're following uh, in our newsroom, I wanted to, um, at the urging of the health departments for the city of New York, the city of Chicago, and Los Angeles County, um, all three health departments are asking that people who are at a higher risk for MPOX, which is also referred to as monkeypox, uh, to get fully vaccinated. If you haven't been with two doses of the vaccine, uh, there have been only three confirmed cases, for example, in Los Angeles, but there has been a reported cluster of at least 14 in Chicago and about the same in New York. So for those of you that would like to uh, protect yourselves, please do. Uh, the following groups are considered at higher risk for contracting MPOX. That's any man or transgender person who has sex with men or trans persons. 
These are persons of any gender or sexual orientation who engage in commercial or transactional sex or have sex in association with large public events. People that are living with HIV, especially people with uncontrolled or advanced HIV, and sexual partners of any of the folks in the people above. So if you fall into those categories, the health department and health officers for the city and county of Los Angeles, Cook County and the city of Chicago, and New York and the county of New York, ask that you please, please, please go get vaccinated. So let's talk about the news. Um, It's not good, of course. That's normal, but that's what we get up with. Um, Currently, the things that we're watching – Florida Governor Ron DeSantis today signed the first of many bills that is basically going to allow doctors and physicians and insurance companies to refuse uh, anybody that's LGBTQ+. So it's not just trans folk. It's basically everybody, and they can do it predicated on religious beliefs and other things. So that bill is now law in Florida. The governor signed it a few hours ago. we haven't gotten any feedback yet from Equality Florida, uh, and I'm waiting on that, but I'm sure that Brandon and the crew there will uh, let me know. The other thing that's very, very troubling about Florida, in addition to the pylon, um, is that based on another bill that is sitting on uh, DeSantis's desk, which probably will be signed, this is Senate Bill 254, this particular bill, um, and this is uh, based on the research that we've done, our journalist and columnist uh, contributor, Erin Reed, has done a lot of work on this. Uh, from her research, it's uh, determining that this new Florida law will probably disrupt about 80% of um, transgender folks across the state. This is beyond the young people now. This is everybody. So you're looking at about 80% of the trans patients in Florida Uh, losing access to gender-affirming care. For some, that's a pretty big deal because there are transgender individuals. Uh, I actually know two of them personally myself who live in Melbourne uh, that transitioned years ago, but they still continue their regimen. This will now make it virtually impossible uh, to do that, so it's going to turn into a thing. I've been told by uh, my sources at NCLR, Lambda Legal, and ACLU, that this is going to be a contained part of a lawsuit against the state of Florida. Uh, Once we get an injunction from a federal judge, it will be helpful. But, again, this puts a lot of people uh, at risk. Um, So there's there's the Florida debacle. Um, Moving across the U.S., uh, let's talk about drag bands because we're still putting up with that. As we enter into Pride season, we now have – Uh, prides that are either canceling out uh, the pride parade completely or they are limiting the pride festivals to 21 and up with government IDs. And in the case of uh, the folks down in northwest Arkansas, the entire parade, uh, pride event, okay, was forced to relocate for the festival because the Walton Center in Fayetteville, which is where it's normally held, said, nope, can't do it, too big of a liability. Mind you, the law that was just passed and signed by Governor Huckabee Sanders does not include drag performances. But because the wording of the bill is so vague, a lot of these entities, like the Walton Center, which is run by a nonprofit for the city of Fayetteville, 
the board decided it was too much a risk, and they basically told Northwest Arkansas Quality, who runs the Pride, sorry, you know, no Pride this year for you at our facility. So that Pride, I'd say conservatively, gets probably between five to 10,000 people from that part of Arkansas and that part of the region around it uh, every year in attendance. So it, it has significant impact. And it has uh, detrimental effects, obviously, on the community. So at this point, they're doing a scramble to find another venue. Uh, we hope they succeed. Let's bounce a couple. Well, let's bounce actually a state up to Missouri. Um, Missouri's legislature just sent two bills to the governor for signature. Both of these bills not only restricts trans residents' access to health care, but it also prohibits them from school sports. Uh, if they're, you know, young folk. Um, Shira Berkowitz, who's the Senior Public Policy Director for Promo Missouri, which is the statewide LGBT organization, uh, told the Los Angeles Blade, and I quote, it's an incredibly devastating day for transgender Missourians and for families raising transgender youth and for all of Missouri. Um, Senate Bill 939, I'm sorry, Senate Bill 39, will ban all trans student athletes from kindergarten through college being able to play on sports as sanctioned on school teams that would align align with their gender identity. Um, And it applies to all schools in the state. So that means public, private, and charter schools. Uh, The other bill that was sent is Senate Bill 49. This one bans gender-affirming surgery for anyone under 18, along with access to transgender-affirming care for minors who are already not a prescribed path for health care. And then additionally, under the law, Medicaid will no longer be able to cover gender-affirming health care for children or adults, and people who are incarcerated will no longer have access to any gender-affirming care at all whatsoever while they are in uh, state uh, custody. Uh, we have a person in St. Louis. He's a rabbi. Daniel Bogart. I've spoken to Rabbi Danny several times. The rabbi has a trans son, and he's been extremely, very, very active in advocacy against the state's anti-trans legislation. Um, In a tweet yesterday, Rabbi Danny said this, I hate them so much, and I hate that I hate them. May the grandchildren of the Republican politicians passing these bigoted bills grow up to be ashamed of who their grandparents were. Yamash Shimon, protect trans kids. I think that Rabbi Danny's sentiments pretty much echo, you know, what we're hearing, not just in Missouri, uh, but across the United States. Uh, a friend of the show, someone who's been on a couple times, um, a person that's probably referred to as a Brody brat, uh, Landon Ritchie, who is with Tent uh, in Texas, uh, which is a trans advocacy group. He's also with Texas uh, well, Equality Texas and the Gender Cool Project, uh, they're currently fighting Senate Bill 14, which would essentially do the same thing that Missouri's just did and, uh, you know, Florida's did and, and everybody else. So it's become a pile on. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's, there's two things I'd like our listeners to remember. Number one, these are Republicans that are doing this. Number two, the vast majority of them are cisgender white men. And number three, they're attacking children. They are attacking children. This is about, you know, erasure, not only just of our community with the book bans and the stupid don't say gay laws, 
But these attacks on these trans kids are an attempt to erase the very existence of these children. These are people who are attacking children. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This is a craven effort, okay, by these people, all right, to destroy not only just that part of our community, but our community in general. You know, I cannot emphasize enough that if you have the ability, you know, the LGBT organizations on the ground in these states desperately need your help. Volunteer, sign up, protest, donate, whatever it takes. You know, people like my friend Danny, uh, Rabbi Danny in St. Louis will thank you. You know, his trans kid will thank you. My young friend Landon will thank you. Our dear friends in Florida at Equality Florida will thank you. But most importantly, okay, this is something that we can do for our community. Um, And the last bit of news I'm going to throw to you, Rob, because you wrote about this. It's number one at the Los Angeles Blade. It's tracking and trending. The drag community got together, and they had themselves a telethon, and it was hugely successful. It continues to be successful. Uh, And, again, it's highly trafficked at the Los Angeles Blade, but I'll let you tell our listeners about it. Great. Thanks. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I would expand, even though you're absolutely right, the epicenter of these targets is children, um, both trans kids and gay kids. You know, it's like the the don't say gay laws are meant to have erasure in schools that um, gay people even exist. And as you look at gay people's stories coming out, um, especially back a few decades ago, one of the issues was when I grew up, I saw no one like me. I didn't, you know, I didn't know other people existed. Now, our society has progressed since then, so if they're paying attention pretty much anywhere else, online, on TV, et cetera, you know, we obviously do exist. So it's not at that level, but that is the attempt. Um, but beyond that, it is also the parents of trans kids. Having a kid who their potential of you doing nothing means that they're more likely to suicide, and I'm speaking as a parent, that is being designated to hell, to be put in a place where you are supposedly allowed to do absolutely nothing to advocate for your child and help your child and give them a fully healthy, normal life, um, both physical health and mental health. So, yeah, these people are renegades. They're awful. They're fascists, quite frankly. And they may call themselves Republicans, but very quickly the Republican Party is becoming the fascist party. Um, and also, you know, going, speaking to the article, um, and drag isn't dangerous. The other thing that is under siege is our creative expression. Um, drag is obviously a legacy creative expression for the LGBTQ community, and it is highly under attack for absolutely no good reason whatsoever. Um, and these artists are are being targeted. Um, in the in the article and from the telethon, uh, Nina West tells a story about how, in her doing um, readings at libraries, etc., and doing a tour. Um, she has been targeted and persecuted by these right-wing extremists, threatening her family, you know, outside her house. You know, it is serious, folks. And the telethon itself is meant to raise money for 
the ACLU. Um, and if you read the article, you can find the links in it to donate. Uh, the telethon aimed to reach $250,000. It maxed over half a million dollars in raising just in the telethon time alone. And I don't know what the current total is, but if you want to add to it, please do check out the article. So um, stepping away from the news of the day, I want to go back to the theme of our show, and that is um, two young filmmakers with um, a film that is written and ready to go in terms of uh, um, its future production. So with that, I'd like to welcome onto the show Matthew and Ryan. Hi, guys. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having us on. Oh, uh, thanks for joining us. Um, It's going great. Uh, now, uh, Matthew, you both come from Minnesota, and um, uh, Ryan, I think you are now located in Montana. Is that right? Um, I spend my time between Montana and Los Angeles, and I'm currently in L.A. right now. Oh, uh, but, yeah, okay. both so, of us are from Minnesota. Yeah, so, we're both um, from the small little lakeside town of Duluth, Minnesota, and, uh, yeah, beautiful town. Beautiful, yeah. Uh, Ryan, I did want to just check in with you on what's going on in Montana because it's been actually a hotbed of controversy over the transgender issues. Um, do you have any any observations on the ground in Montana of, of what the mood is there? Um, you know, I haven't been there, or I haven't been there since the Zoe Zephyr, um, everything that went down there, but... Um, I know that the the political landscape there has definitely been um, in a very difficult place um, since that has happened. And I know my experience there, I, I definitely felt um, some of the pressure of that. I know they, they painted some pride sidewalks in Bozeman and, you know, cars freaked their tires over them. And um, so it definitely doesn't feel like the safest place to, um, be someone who's queer and uh, yeah. So it, interestingly, um, the film Scraps is going to take place in Montana. Um, what were were you led to do that because the environment is a little bit unsafe, or um, what was your what was your bent on on setting the film in that environment? Um, yeah, I mean, for me, the film definitely came from my experiences of, of growing up um, from ages of eight, from 18 to 23 um, in Montana and sort of my experience coming out there. And um, I had a really positive experience, and I think it's, it's easy for um, people who maybe haven't visited the state to see it as a very dark place and... Um, I don't want to spread that message because I think there is a lot of great things happening in Montana and I, I really want um, people to see that. And um, I had a, an amazing experience um, uh, being queer there and there obviously were some difficulties, but I think that, um, yeah, we're trying to tell the unauthentic story of um, of how that was. Well, and there is obviously a positive story from Montana too, because just on what you mentioned with Zoe, there was, even though 
in the state government itself. Um, she was highly persecuted. Um, she stepped outside, and you know a lot of support showed up um, at the doorstep there. So, yeah. So there's obviously good hearts somewhere there, um, and that's that's really who we want to reach. Um, I want to backtrack though. You both have um, pretty impressive video backgrounds. Um, you have worked with uh, Samsung, Oakley, Hyundai. ESPN and Matthew um, and Matthew, I have to say, I have a special place in my heart for you coming from foodie and film because those are two yeah. things I love. I am definitely addicted to the uh, Food Channel um, in, in a big way. Um, so, what? Uh, how did you each get started in your your film interests? Ryan, yeah, first. I can talk first. Um, uh, yeah, for me, it was really, you know, started out in high school. Um, I started the film club at East High School in Duluth and uh, wanted to get, you know, other kids excited about filmmaking like I was. And I ultimately just started making little short films for the talent show. And, um, yeah, that was kind of, you know, the early beginnings of film for me. And um, I moved out to Montana and, and met a small group of filmmakers there and started doing real estate videos. And, um, that, uh, quickly turned into commercial film production and, um, and then some documentary work, you know, getting into tourism and, um, telling more local stories around the state of Montana and in Minnesota. And, um, and then started to transition a little bit into, um, narrative and where we are now. And, um, I felt like I really wanted to change from the commercial uh, side of things and wanted to put some more uh, passion and heart in, into the work that I was creating. How about you, Matthew? Yeah, for me, so, you know, grew up in Duluth, and um, Ryan was on the east side of town. I was on the west side. I went to Denfeld High School, and growing up, I loved um, food, and I loved, like, food TV. I was the kind of food nerd who would sit around and watch Food Network and Cooking Channel all day long and take notes. And so I always knew I wanted to be a chef, but I didn't know, I didn't even know like making films uh, or being on TV or making TV was a job as a kid for some reason. So my, my only path forward in my mind was becoming a chef. So I went to culinary school for four years. I worked in restaurants um, all around the country uh, and I competed in my like, cooking competitions to raise money for college. And then basically I kind of fell in love like even deeper with film and with editing and kind of visual storytelling when YouTube became a thing. You know, I, I was like watching YouTubers both for food and comedy and stories. And so in college I started making dumb little food videos with my friends and those kind of, um, I didn't get any views, maybe 10 views per video. Uh, but eventually by the time I graduated culinary school, Buzzfeed had seen them. So um, they, all, they like, sent me an email and they said, hey, we have a new food brand called Tasty and we're looking for a young chef who we can bring on to teach about video and become one of our producers. And I was like, whoa, like, sure, I'd love to come over. Um, and this is right when like Facebook video was just being invented. So social media was barely a thing at the time, especially social media with video. Um, and at the time, um, BuzzFeed Tasty was making like pizza dip and like, you know, pickle rolls and nothing really chefy. So that's why they wanted to hire me. And so right after culinary school, I, I uh, moved to Los Angeles and I was a tasty producer for like two and a half years. I, it was, I feel like it's like free film school. I got to learn from incredibly passionate, talented people who went to film school, who had been working in TV, in media, in all different aspects for so long. And I got to create some viral food videos. 
And the whole time, you know, I, I took my chef expertise and was learning about video and how to film and edit. But I also want to tell more stories because we could with food, you know, with like kind of personal family stories or kind of cultural stories, but not really to the same narrative level that I was, um, was hoping for. And I'm a big reader. I love watching movies. Um, and so I knew one day maybe I could possibly, um, you know, keep doing food, but transition to a more narrative thing. Um, and then since BuzzFeed, you know, I've, I've freelanced other companies like Viacom and Fox and uh, MTV, other little places. And then now I work at Dot Dash Meredith, which is um, a huge media conglomerate that owns kind of all the big magazine brands that have been turned to digital. So Better Homes and Gardens, People, Entertainment Weekly. And then for the food side where I work on, there's um, uh, Food and Wine, Eating Well, All Recipes, Southern Living. You know, basically all those beautiful food magazines are now digital. Um, and I lead a food and film crew. We shoot 20 recipe videos every week for any of those food brands. And uh, it's, uh, it's balls to the wall every single day, but it's beautiful. <laughs> I get to kind of combine my loves of food and filming together. But how I got into writing was, you know, as a, a kid, I, I, did, like, my, I was on my high school speech team, and I was in the category of storytelling. And then we'd go and perform at little local um, high schools in Minnesota and, and like, perform in front of other students. And I, so I got in the habit of writing a story on the fly and how to really tell a good narrative from beginning to end, how to add heart in a really quick little thing. Um, and then uh, I had to write a lot of essays for college to get money for tuition. And then um, during the pandemic, I, when everything kind of shut down, I, I decided I, want, I had like a story in my head for a novel. So I wrote my first YA queer sci-fi action novel called Prax and the Hazardous Countdown. And that was my first experience writing a full full story outside of like my work and outside of school. And I love it. I'm really proud of it. And I knew I wanted more. And so that's where Ryan and I first kind of became connected because early last year um, I had seen, uh, you know, his, his uh, photography and cinematic work was shared on like a Duluth Instagram page. And I reached out to him and I said, Hey, like I'm a, I'm like a young kind of video producer and um, from Duluth and I want to make films one day. My goal is to write my first short film this year. What are you working on? And Ryan was like, I'll make my first, um, I'll direct my first short film. And that's where Scraps started. Um, so, yeah, you know, we both wrote the screenplay. Um, uh, I would say, like, we had different, like, jobs within it. Uh, and the, everyone's loving the story. And now we're set to make the short film. So we're really, really proud where we're going. Excellent. Yeah. And Ryan, the, even though, um, as Matthew said, he, he kind of uh, made contact and, um, with the goal of writing, um, the story is actually based on your life. Is that correct? Yeah, largely based on, you know, my experiences uh, coming out in Montana to a group of friends there and um, also my time growing up in Minnesota. And um, largely based on kind of my experience dabbling in the skateboarding world a little bit. I kind of have these memories of, you know, walking into a Zoomies and buying my first skateboard. I think this is when I was like 12 or 13 and kind of setting it down in a skate park and just immediately feeling such a taboo, like I didn't belong there. That wasn't a place for me. Hmm. And uh, I remember too, like buying a pair of these like Etnies flat bottom skate shoes and wearing them into um, one of my middle school classes and just getting laughed at because I, you know, I didn't feel like I could really be this person who I was interested in in being. And um, so I had a lot of, yeah, resistance to the skateboarding world. And I think 
I, I started getting into longboarding a lot more because that was something I could do on my own time outside of the skate park and um, felt a little bit more comfortable doing that. Um, but, yeah, I I really knew that for my first feature film, um, I wanted to tell this passionate coming-of-age story that was largely based on, on my life and that experience. But then also... Um, dramatize that a little bit, make it a more interesting arc and, and develop some really rich characters that could help tell a better story. And um, yeah, and so the initial um, project started out actually as a novel and I, I began writing four or five chapters of that novel um, just starting to develop the characters and the setting and um and around that time, I also met Matthew, and, and I started t- telling him about the project, and uh, and we really hit it off right away. And I think one thing that's funny that Matthew said is, um, I actually think we might have met on Hinge, so if you're yeah. listening here, that'll be great. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I think Friendship's we better. connected on there, and um, <laughs> we weren't interested in a romantic sense, but... Um, yeah we still wanted to to connect and work together. And um, so, yeah, it became a really beautiful friendship and partnership and started, we started hopping on calls almost every day, um, brainstorming what this movie could, could turn into and what it could be. And, um, and it started to get a lot of buzz recently and, and, you know, a lot of young actors have been talking about it and, um, it's been really exciting for us to, to see this journey unfold. Yeah, it's, it sounds great, and it's intriguing. Um, it's funny, I relate to it on a whole separate level because my son, who is 20, um, actually works at Zoomies. Um, he is a skateboarder, um, and he would relate oh, really? to a lot of the things in the films because he literally has built a, scra- uh, uh, a skateboard from scraps um, and you know, and Hell yeah. one on on his own. Um, so he he would have protected you at the park. He's not gay himself, but you know, obviously the son of a of a gay dad, um, you know, he's very protective of of those who are. Um, but uh, so I, I feel like he's going to be very intrigued by by the story. Now, um, so there are two scripts. There's a long uh, full feature uh, film length script and a short. Uh, film script they're both they both kind of end a little bit differently um what uh what is the strategy behind the two scripts so basically one thing that we did when we first started writing was we realized that we had a larger story to tell and even though our initial goal was to only write a short film we're like man we really have a lot larger of a story here so we decided to follow our passions and fully finish the feature length version of the story and um, we are really proud of the larger story. But then we have to, um, in order to kind of get funding, often you have to do a proof of concept or a smaller short film version first. So once we had the full story with all the characters, all the ups and downs, the full journey, we were able to take some of the best scenes that kind of got you a small taste of that uh, larger tale. And we made it in the short film version. And that way we can shoot it within like a, you know, a few days. We can make a really beautiful, smaller version of the product and then get more people on board for the feature. But both stories are um, self-contained. 
They're both really beautiful, and they're just extensions of each other. Yeah, it's, I, and I want to give you kudos. Number one, both scripts are very well written. They're, you know, it's like it's top-notch, um, and I've read plenty of scripts, trust me. And, I'll, you know, it's like I, I, I hate the ones where I'm, like, cringing through. This, these are well-drawn, very natural, uh, very relatable. The second is, um, I think, and Ryan, I think this was your influence um, that I was reading about, but a, a lot of what your influence is is um, independent films from Europe. And the reason that speaks to me is because I've always had kind of a problem with some of the independent American gay LGBT films that they too often try to make statements about, you know, this is what a gay person thinks or this is what a gay person does rather than tell the stories of characters who happen to be gay. Um, And your scripts, are very organic that way. These are definite characters. You know, their their attraction and their feelings for each other are obviously gay, but they're not trying to make themselves a a trope or a prototype of what it, it takes to be a gay person in America or Montana specifically. Um, can you talk a little bit about your influences of of existing LGBTQ films and how that either influenced you or things that you didn't want it to become. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that, you know, from the onset, I am a huge lover of queer cinema, and I've just been an avid consumer of of a lot of those films. And it's funny, on my letterbox, I have a a whole list of kind of my favorite uh, LGBTQ films. And um, I definitely wanted, you know, the, the influence of this film to be avant-garde. You know, I, I look at, at films like Beach Rats, um, films like uh, Youngins or Boys, uh, which was Misha Camp's uh, directorial debut. Um, and, yeah, like you're saying, some of these foreign films that I felt like were telling a really authentic story and – you know, I also went and recently saw the film Joyland um, and Close, which were two of um, this year's Oscar um, foreign films. And um, I was deeply affected um, by that, especially Lucas Daunt's Close, um, where, you know, just the story of these two boys kind of figuring out how, you know, what this kind of early love um is in a male friendship and how that kind of bleeds away um, as you get older. And um, so those those were definitely big influences for me um, with this film. And um, I think too, like there's obviously some bigger queer films that Matthew and I both reference, like Call Me By Your Name and um, Broke Back and and some of these classics. Um, But uh, yeah, ultimately, I think we were trying to stray away from the Love, Simon, Love, Victor kind mm-hmm. of narrative and keep it a little bit more um, uh, personal. Yeah, Our no, film is like a time it, capsule type of movie. Sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. And um, can you elaborate on that? What What do you mean by that? Yeah. So yeah. You know, we lo- oh, uh, Ryan, you go. Well, I was just saying um, – 
yeah, trying to make this film about skateboarding, obviously it is about the queer experience as well, but trying to have the characters be uh, first in this narrative. And, um, and it is a coming out story, but it isn't a coming out story like I think most people have seen or experienced before. Um, it, if you want to elaborate that on, on that, Matthew, too. Yeah. Um, basically, what I was going to say is, so this is like a time capsule of a movie, right? It's not taking place in modern times. It's in 2003, which I know it seems pretty recent, and it is, but now it's 20 years ago. And especially talking about a smaller town like Mo- Livingston, Montana, you know, there's a different attitude that you may see in like the, on the coastal sides of the U.S. And I think a lot of our queer stories come from their more uh, like liberal towns, and uh, it's in a more modern sensibility. But with this story, we really want to t- take you back to a time where it was before the internet, before everyone was on their phones all the time, and where like, people really had to figure out who they were first before they could see themselves on TV or other shows. And that's why I think it, it feels really real to you, Rob, because we, before we could just have Bridger or Gossip be gay, or what we've seen before many times, these people had to be real individuals who had a real thing that was happening to them this summer, and they just met. They happened to meet. They happened to become friends first, and then that friendship developed over time because they were both having pulls and dreams and wants between each other, and they each had something they wanted to accomplish. You know, Bridger wants to become a better skater, but he's also kind of lost. He wants to figure out some purpose in his life. And then Gus, he is going to art school, but he is like kind of have no friends and he doesn't know how to kind of live within the world around him. He's kind of stuck in his sketchbook. So both these boys have a personal journey to go on. It's not just about them being gay. It's not just about the love or the romance. Those things come, but it's all about their personal growth from the beginning of that summer to the end. And I think everyone has a summer of their life where they really transform and change and grow. And we want to reflect that more human experience beyond just the gay part of the story because that's what's most relatable to everybody and it's what's most beautiful and then the the gay part of the story is what can add that cherry on the top that makes it even more unique niche and profound but yeah it's about bridger gus and their story together well also i think one of the aspects of it and um you know in the promo for this podcast i, I referenced Heartstoppers um mm-hmm. because both um feature not really gay sex, but gay romance. And mm-hmm. I think that's an important coming out, honestly, because a lot of the rhetoric that we've talked about at the top of the show, a lot of this political persecution that's happening, um, part of the leverage that they are using to scare people, conservative people who are not that well versed with what gay people are and everything else, is they are trying to make it all about sex and they don't Mm -hmm. one of the perspectives they don't have for example in kindergarten they have no problem with a a little girl walking to kindergarten and they tell her story of cinderella and falling in love with a prince and you know so heterosexuality is ingrained and you know to um uh, uh you know the you know that influence is there but you know they don't the same-sex attraction as romantic. Um, so the right. romance aspect of your story, um, I think, is is actually super important because I think for people who aren't gay, I think they do need to see and experience that. Um, so I think that that's super, super vital. 
Um, one thing we haven't talked about, which people listening just have no idea, can you give us a little um, teaser on the plot itself so people know what the film is, is about, how it, how it evolves? Yeah. Uh, should I take that one, Ryan? Yeah, go for it. Or how about I'll read the log line and then you can maybe dive into it Perfect. a little bit more. So you can keep it up. But yeah, the yes, the log line of straps is uh, in rural 2003 Montana, two closeted teen boys navigate unexpected love and harsh small town judgment while selling handcrafted boards to a gang of Livingston skaters. Yes. So basically, our story starts off where we have a young 18-year-old boy named Gus. He's shy, he's artistic, um, but he doesn't really know a lot about the world because he's only from a small town in Minnesota. And he is going to art school for the first time across the, the country in Rhode Island, uh, you know, once the summer is over. But he has to save some money up to pay for college. So his uncle lives in Montana, and his uncle gave him a job working in his wood shop. So Gus comes to Montana. He's a new kid in town. He's kind of more like his uncle lives outside of the major city, kind of in a more kind of rural area. And Gus works for his uncle, making some money, making chairs, some furniture. And um, over time, he wants to explore the town a bit. So he goes into Livingston, and then all of a sudden, he, like, sees the sights, and then he stumbles across, like, a skate park. And he sees boys skateboarding, doing really cool tricks, flying high in the air for the first time. And, you know, he isn't, this is the time kind of before Internet, so maybe he's heard of skateboarding but never seen it in his actual um, you know, right in front of him before. So Gus is like amazed by skateboarding. And in particular, he finds one boy in, interestingly more uh, fascinating than the rest. And um, Bridger, or Gus is someone who always is like skating, like the nature around it, or he's sketching the nature around him and he kind of sketches the park. And he really finds a beautiful um, a fascination with skateboarding. But then he doesn't have a skateboard. He doesn't know how to do it himself. He has no money to buy the tools for it. So he goes and tells his uncle, and the uncle is like, not for it. He's like, you have to keep working, save your money. None of us have been to college before. This is, you know, this is your chance to make something of yourself. You should go to college and focus on your, on your actual work. Um, but Gus sneaks out. He goes to a skate shop in town. He tries to figure out that he can't afford it, so he has to, like, make one himself. He ends up stealing some wood scraps from his uncle without telling him, and he starts making a board, a skateboard himself. Eventually, he makes it. He goes to practice alone at the park because he tried earlier to maybe talk to some people where he meets Tara, but then he hears the, the skateboarding boys um, kind of joking around, and one of them named Max is like a bully, and he's kind of homophobic and really aggressive, and that scares Gus away from wanting to go meet them because Gus has never been able to make friends. Um, and then he eventually, uh, once all the boys leave, he uh, skateboards on his own, falls over a bunch of times, and then he meets Bridger, who was, like forgot his... Uh, you know, MP3 player on the bench. The boys strike up conversation. Bridger's wowed by this board. And basically they make a, a deal where Bridger will teach Gus how to skate if Gus can make Bridger a homemade board. And that's where their connection begins. So the boys, um, Bridger starts teaching Gus how to skate. Gus sneaks Bridger into the wood shop to show him how he made the board. And they develop a friendship over this kind of deal as time goes on. And they realize they make each other laugh. They can tell each other secrets they never told anyone else before. They reminisce about their lives, both in small towns and their dreams for the future, and they really get deeper and closer. But, you know, Max uh, or Bridger has all these kind of boys in town that he's used to hanging out with who wouldn't freak out if any kind of gay stuff happened or any kind of feelings of romance towards another boy. So Bridger is kind of lost in his thoughts about things, and Gus doesn't know how he can um, keep this up without his uncle finding out about him taking the, the materials. 
And as time goes on, um, both boys really kind of are facing pull, pushes and pulls from people around them that makes their own growing friendship and eventual relationship much more difficult. Um, and once they go to like, once they have like a, a bonfire night, the boys get pretty close. They have an almost kiss and their friendship really becomes something more serious. And um, we have other characters like Tara Shea, who is another character in town who befriends Gus and she notices that he's different than the other boys around them. And she kind of brings out the softer side of Gus and accepts him for who he is. And that allows Gus to kind of start flourishing. And uh, yeah, as time goes on, the boys try to, um, they get more confidence in their making of the board. They try to sell them to people around town. And eventually the choice that kind of uh, comes apparent is they have to either be honest with everyone around them or they have to keep hiding. And um, well, leave it to actually watching the film to see what happens. But it's a beautiful summer where both boys learn a lot about each other, their small town, and the future they hope to build. Right. Wonderful. And so, Ryan, based, since this is based on your story, which of the characters is more you? Definitely. I think that um, I definitely, like, put myself into both Gus and Bridger. Gus, from an artistic side growing up, I was that creative type. I felt like I maybe would have wanted to build my own skateboard, and that kind of could have been my, like, creative way of fitting in. Um, and... Yeah, being shy, kind of being an artist, not really um, having a lot of friends growing up and, and maybe, you know, one or two really close connections, but no, I didn't have this huge friend circle. And so I think that I really related to Gus in that aspect. Uh, but I also related to Bridger in, in a couple different ways where I, you know, as I was growing up in Montana, felt like I – had a really interesting experience coming out to my friends there. And there's a scene in the movie um, where he comes out to his friends in this um, uh, pond, I guess uh, they're swimming in a pond and um, they keep asking him like, who's the girl, who's the girl, because they know that he, you know, has been seeing someone or has been hanging out with someone. And um, that line, who's the girl is, is real for my life where, you know, my friends found out that I went on a date and they kept asking me, like, yeah, who is this girl that you were hanging out with last night? And um, eventually it's like, oh, well, not a girl. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's a guy. And uh, so I think that really influenced Bridger, and I'm so glad that that scene is, is in the movie um, because it hits close to home for me. That, that's awesome. What was the process for the two of you writing together? How did you you integrate, uh, especially since, Ryan, it was your, you know, a lot of your experience, um, but then Matthew obviously is the talented writer as well. Yeah, I think, um, well, it really started out um, us just getting all of our ideas and, and some of these um, lines from, you know, real life experiences from my life, like down in a Google doc. And we ended up making a 30 page document that just had all the characters and scenes from, you know, my life and, and, you know, some of the writings from the novel that I started and um, Matthew was able to come in and build some other characters like Tara Shea, who is 
actually a character that we both kind of had in our lives and I think we, we thought was really important to the script. And um, once we got that 30-page kind of outline, Matthew was able to really, like, come in strong and, and uh, bust, help us out a first draft. And then together we would come back and work through the dialogue and, and shave things here and there and um, all while kind of reading the script out loud together um, over Zoom calls just constantly and me, you know, playing Bridger and Matthew playing Gus and us both reading the action lines and saying like, oh, you know, maybe that isn't maybe that's not realistic. And, um, and we individually did write different scenes here and there. I would say Matthew did the bulk of, of the writing, um, overall. Um, and then it was just, yeah, back and forth of, um, refining it. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Matthew, if you want to touch on that at all. Yeah. So I, I think it's really fascinating about the process that Ryan and I did because I've worked with other writers in the past, and we have a really complimentary writing style where basically, um, you know, as Ryan said, we kind of made this huge document and he had a lot of like visual ideas for the film and a lot of beautiful like scene ideas and line ideas, but we didn't, he didn't really know how to connect from A to Z, right? And where I come in with writing is I love structure. I love how do we get from the beginning to the middle to the end and create a lot of beautiful arcs within the meantime. So I was able, our usual process was he would give some ideas and then, like, I put in a few things of my own, right? So, uh, like, like, the character of Tarshe, I have an actual friend named Tara in my real life who me, who's given permission for us to use the name. Uh, and, you know, she inspired me a lot and really helped me come out when I was growing up. So Tara is fully influenced from um, this woman in my life. And uh, as Ryan said, he had, he had a Tara in his own life, who's also a friend of mine. Uh, and it's, it's so funny how, how life works sometimes. But, um, and then, uh, basically, how it would work is, I would write, because I'm, I'm really good at like kind of word vomiting on a page where I, I can write a huge, a large amount of stuff and let all the ideas flow out, Glee, and what would you actually say in real life? And so what I would do is, like, we'd, you know, I would we'd, I'd have a little meeting with Ryan, and then I'd do like a huge chunk of writing where, like, for two days, I would kind of, you know, make, like, maybe two, three or four scenes, and then we'd come to Ryan, and we'd kind of, and I'd come back to Ryan, and we'd kind of tear it down a little bit. And that kind of push and pull allowed us really to create the dr- first draft so quickly, and really, I think, continue honing it because if it were just me, I probably would have made it much too long or maybe, maybe too in depth. So Ryan kind of pulling it back, allowed it to feel more grounded and more real and more, of course, to his um, uh, vision of the story. But then maybe if, if I hadn't been involved, Ryan would have had a lot of um, great ideas that maybe wouldn't have gotten across the finish line because, uh, you know, we're both really busy people and I kind of just have this way to like, push, push, push to actually get to the heart of the story and move forward. So, yeah, our, our, how it happened is we have very complementary but very different uh, writing styles, which was really great for the project. Yeah, Excellent. Matt, that's, that's very cool. Overnight, if he, if he needed to. And, and then, uh, you know, my style is I'm a lot more focused on, like, the individual words and going a lot slower with it. So it'd be hard for me to um, – write as quickly as, as Matthew could. And um, so, yeah, that was definitely a fun back and forth. Yeah, for sure. So, guys, I want to ask you, what what is the process moving forward? Because obviously you've got to, you know, now your producer hats have got to go on and you've got to, you know, get the funding and, you know, all of that stuff together. What What is the process and who do you have involved on that? Absolutely. Um, 
So, yeah, we've, we've managed to attach uh, a couple producers who have been absolutely critical to the project thus far, and um, one of them is Chance uh, Housley, who's a Montana-based producer, and he's been um, there from, from day one, really, um, getting a lot of the um, background work done um, that you don't see. And um, another person who's been absolutely influential is uh, Colton Underwood, um, who was uh, on The Bachelor and in the, in the NFL. And um, he came onto the project uh, several months ago and has been um, really, really helpful in getting the script passed around around Hollywood. And, um, um, yeah, so meeting him was, was definitely a game changer for, for Scraps. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then and uh, just on, like, on a more – insular level like we we won a grant that like a, a, the big sky film grant for um like that was our first win and we currently are like have a kickstarter that's running right now it's about to end and we kind of raise money through both the grant and through the fundraising and with some private donors and that's where we will move forward with making the short film this summer and so we're currently casting in montana we're um their chance of helping uh, assemble a crew there and we're kind of taking our short film script and we're, you know, breaking it down by scene and what we need for the location, what we need for props, what we need for wardrobe. And we're, we're in that process now of planning all the stuff before we actually get on set to shoot in the uh, late June. Excellent. And is Colton going to be taking a, pl- a part in the film itself? I, I saw his, he has a Netflix series of his whole coming out process as well. Um, what what do you see his involvement moving forward? Uh, no, he's more behind the scenes, just as an executive producer on the project, and um, um, yeah, but he'll be on set with us, just uh, helping out behind the scenes. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, and he can be on set. In the, in the casting process, have you narrowed down the the two lead parts at all, or are you still looking? We uh, are going to – we're not going to reveal that kind of stuff right now. We are really happy with what it, where it's moving forward, uh, and I think things will be revealed soon. But uh, we're really excited with, with, what's, with the casting process and who we're talking with. Uh, but, yes, we're going we're gonna to wait a little longer for that, so it's not done yet. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Um, well, guys, we're down to our last five minutes, so what haven't I asked you that we should be talking about around this? I have a fun little tidbit that we could talk about. So, uh, Rob, you're a huge fan of food. So, you know, one of the small things I got to bring to Ryan's wonderful story within the of scraps is we have a lot of great food scenes. So, like one of our characters <laughs> is Uncle Dan. One of our characters is Uncle Dan, and he's like a you know a, a wonderful kind of elderly stoic lumberjack with a heart of gold character. And one of the ways that Uncle Dan shows love is through cooking. You know, he used to cook for his wife, who um, unfortunately passed away. And now that Gus um, is coming into town to spend time with him, Uncle Dan's journey is that he's been pretty lonely for many years. And, um, you know, once Gus comes around, he realizes, oh, I, I have family that I can kind of share stuff, stuff with again. And so Uncle Dan cooks for Gus, and we, so we'll have some beautiful food in the film. And then the boys bond over, like, in um, – there's, like, a burger shop. It's kind of iconic in Livingston, Montana. And um, we have, like, the boys enjoying, like, pizza burgers and ice cream cones and malt. And then there's, like, a, a, a particular scene that's one of my favorites that's in both the short and in the feature. And we call it the ketchup scene. 
which, you know, I don't know if I should tell you or not, but it's, it's called the ketchup scene. And um, I'm very proud of that. So those are a little fun tidbits that I think you would probably enjoy, Rob. Oh, yeah, I definitely will. It's like those films that are based around cooking, like the ones where the romance is, you know, between chefs and all that, I literally, pardon the expression, eat all that up. Um, <laughs> in the last few minutes, I, I do have a bizarre off-the-wall question, and this is for Ryan. Um, in your bio, you do describe yourself as being an avalanche survivor. What was that about? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that's actually true. I um, I actually have a tattoo on my body from uh, on my hands. Uh, it's a little reminder of of that experience. But uh, yeah, in Montana, kind of the first year that I was there, I had a lot of things thrown at me right away, and. A couple of those things being um, an avalanche that I survived um, when I was backcountry skiing. Um, it was a very serious, um, like, full burial situation. Um, I was charged by a grizzly bear and in a triple rollover car crash, you know, in a blizzard. And so Montana is a very serious place, I learned quickly. <laughs> um, oh, but, uh, yeah, the... the um, Avalanche was um, um, a, a whole long story that that could be told, <laughs> but um, yeah, very, very yeah. I was gonna say you you have an experience with drama that I'm sure will fuel this and many stories to come. <laughs> it's like you yeah, I, I'll definitely say that, that that has influenced a lot of my um, future scripts and and log lines that I've got in the works. Is a, a lot of those. Uh, my time in Montana definitely influenced me and also just time outdoors and, and backpacking. And I uh, um, had through hiked the Continental Divide Trail with my mom. And um, so I've lived a, a lot of life for a 24-year-old, I will say. Um, <laughs> Great. And trying to get back to all of my writing. Well, thank you guys both for coming on today. Um, it's been a joy and can't wait to see how this moves forward. Please keep us involved in that <clears throat> so we can talk about it and write about it in the blade. And, um, you know, it, it's, it sounds like it's going to be absolutely excellent. Um, so I want to thank you guys for coming on today and excited to see the film. I want to thank Brody Levesque for his uh, contribution to the show, as well as being the editor of the Los Angeles Blade. Make sure you read the blade. It is your daily influx of original journalism, and it is the winner of the uh, 2023 GLAAD Award for Excellence in Journalism, thanks to the work of Brody Levesque and his team. Um, and you can find that at LosAngelesBelayed.com. As for us at Raise LGBT Radio, we will be back again next week with another really wonderful and exciting show. No idea what it is, but it will be all of that. We'll see you then. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.